Welcome to the Teamwork Advantage podcast with Greg Gregory. Join us as Greg interviews powerful thought leaders and successful team and leadership experts from across the country on teamwork, leadership, and organizational culture. Now let's check in for this week's episode. Welcome back to the Teamwork Advantage, a podcast that's dedicated to the growth, development, and advancement in three key areas, teamwork, leadership, and culture, or what we like to call the TLC. Joining us today is Sean Murray from Real Time Performance. And Sean, before I get into your bio a little bit, just tell us a little bit about, you know, where you came from. I mean, we're going to talk today about the 1984, um, I'm starting to say hockey, 1984 volleyball team, men's volleyball. So I'm going to ask our listeners, where were you in 1984? And so you were 13 years old at that time and sitting on the sidelines. And tell us a little bit about how you kind of got into that. And then we'll get into your bio a little bit. Sure. Thanks, Greg. Happy, really glad to be on the show. And that was an exciting time for me in my life. It was an exciting time in the United States and in Los Angeles because the United States was hosting an Olympics that year in Los Angeles. And I was there. I was in the stands in the Long Beach Arena the summer of 1984, as the USA men's volleyball team was working its way through a bracket in a tournament on its way on a quest, really, for a gold medal, their first ever gold medal. And I, I was uh, in the stands because my father was the team psychologist for this team. You know, he was involved in helping the team become a team. I didn't really understand what that was at that time. I have since followed in my father's footsteps to get into a line of work around helping organizations build teams, build culture, uh, leadership development. So your your TLC is is definitely in alignment with uh, my philosophy. Mm-hmm. Um, it all started with um, you know my interest in in teams. You know I could trace it back to being in in the stands there and watching this team come together. It's so fascinating when you start to watch it because. You were what I think 13 at the time you said. That's right. And when you're that young, you're not really sure of what you're seeing, what you know, what's happening. And you're, you're kind of watching history, if you will. And then it just started to build. So some of those early moments probably have had a lasting impact on you over the years. Is that about right? Definitely. And you know, when you're at that age, you know, my my mindset, my thought was, well, the best players win. So the United States must have the best players because the U.S., you know, full uh, spoiler alert, they win the gold medal in 84. (laughs) And uh, I figured, well, they have the most talent. And there was a lot of talent on that team. And, And so when I think back of my journey and where I started, it's interesting how, you know, my understanding of what makes a great team and what brings uh, out and unleashes and unlocks the potential of a team is not necessarily talent. Talent is good to have. Talent is important to have. You, you, you need to have talent if you want to be a champion. But what I've learned to separate the best from the best, to become uh, a champion, to become a dynasty, it's something more than talent because every good team has talent. You look at the NFL. You look at, at that the level, NFL, they've got to have talent. you got to have talent. So what's it going to be? What's the X factor, Greg, that's going to lift you above the other teams? And, and what I've learned through the years and in researching this book, it's, it's how you work together 
It's the culture. It's the team dynamics. And, yeah. and that's what that that's been a fascinating evolution for me in, in my thought and in my work. Well, let's get into a little bit about who you really are along these lines. Sean is the founder and the president of Real-Time Performance, a leadership training or, and organizational development firm headquartered out of the Seattle, Washington area. He creates and delivers learning experiences for clients. They include courses on leadership, decision-making, business acumen, time management, I like well-being, and of course, and this one's fascinating, leading in the age of artificial intelligence. So there's going to be a lot of folks that listen to our podcast that are really going to key in on that segment. He's also the uh, host of a weekly podcast called The Good Life, where he interviews authors and business professionals on leadership and how to get the most out of life. So natural, he's a good fit for our podcast here as well. He writes regularly for his blog, Real-Time Performance, and publishes a bi-weekly newsletter, Murray on Leadership. He's also co-authored the 5A's framework, Getting More from Your Investment in Training. And that's, that's so key because so many people do a training and think it's just going to happen and it's work, but how do you get more out of it? Today he's going to talk to us about his book, though, If Gold is Our Destiny. You know, when you think about that, I really love the subtitle, how a team of mavericks, okay, I think that's so key, come together for Olympic glory. So, Sean, let's get back into this a little bit. Where did the idea for the book come about? Because it's a long way from the time you were 13 to where you are today. <laughs> well, about, about five years ago, my wife gave me a book, uh, was recommended to her, and she thought I would like it, called Boys in the Boat. And Boys in the Boat, if you're not familiar, is a, is a best-selling book, but it's it's about the 1936 American crew team that went on to the Olympics in Berlin, the so-called Nazi Olympics, mm -hmm. and won a gold medal, an amazing, improbable victory over the German boat, over the English boat, the British boat, and this kind of ragtag group of mavericks back then somehow pulled it together and became kind of the ultimate team inside this crew, uh, this skull, and really uh, won a gold medal. And so I read this book and I was just really inspired by the team and what they accomplished, how they did it, which got me thinking, you know, I like to use sports analogies in my work and how I teach leadership and culture and people love to learn through stories. They remember stories, yeah. right? It's, it's narrative. Absolutely. Back to. Uh, and so I thought I'd like to write a book and maybe study a team similar to what was done with the boys in the boat. And I was thinking back, well, what could I write about? And that's when it hit me. Okay. I had a front row seat to this team that won gold. I also had some inside information because my father was the team psychologist. I knew and still know the coach, Doug Beal. So I called Doug Beal up. I said, Doug, I'm thinking about writing a book about the 1984 team that you coached to a gold medal. Uh, what do you think? What do you think about that team? Is it worthy of writing a book? And, and he started to tell me more about their story, stuff I did not know when I was 13. And, you know, for example, they ended up going on an outward bound, a three week outward bound course as part of their training, which I'm sure we'll talk about. So some of these elements to the story, I thought, you know, I think there really is something there. And, it, and that's what embarked. That's how I embarked and kind of launched me into writing the book. It took a while, but I that just came out last July. And uh, 
And so that's how I got started. And, and I learned a lot along the way, Greg. Well, it's fascinating when you start to look at the way teams develop. And earlier you said that it's not always about the best players. And I had the privilege a few years ago to sit on a, um, an airplane next to Jerry Colangelo, who was the head of USA Basketball. And we talked for two hours about this very topic and the fact that it's not the best players. You know, it's the people that have the best chemistry. So it's not the best players, it's the right players that fit with the chemistry so that that cog could really run. And that sounds like what you're talking about here. Yeah, yeah. And I, I've got a, a saying around that, that to, it, it's not it's not who's on the team, it's how they play together. Yes. I think Jerry Colangelo is an excellent example because USA basketball has a history of pulling together all-stars, sending them to the Olympics. And, and blowing it. And blowing it, you know, and you're thinking <laughs> this, you know, we have the best talent. How do we not win a gold medal every single four years? And, you know, it's it becomes obvious if you're uh, – aficionado of basketball or a fan and you're watching a game and you just see there's no chemistry sometimes when they yeah. put these teams together you know uh there's too much individuality you know one thing about a, a winning team a team that's really working together individuals put the success of the team above themselves yes that, that's a very important step that has to happen it doesn't you can't dictate it you can't sit in the locker room as a coach and say you got to put your individual success of um, subsume your ego and put the team success above your individual success. It, you can say that till you're blue in the face as a coach. It's really got to come about through the interactions, through the dynamics, through how people treat each other, you know, belief in each other. It's, and it takes time. You, you can't just throw some uh, people together. So, so I think that's a great example and, and something I definitely observed and learned in writing the book about the 84 volleyball team. So let's talk about that outward bound. I mean, <laughs> That's a bold move. If I understood the way things are and what I read out of the book, that's a bold move to try and do something like that. So when did that happen uh, in relationship to the Olympic Games? Well, about two years before the Games, the coaches realized that the team was not gelling. It was not winning at the rate it should have been winning based on the talent they had. They were also having trouble winning the big game. You know, when things... When the stakes were high, when they're up against the Soviet Union or some of the best teams in the world at the time, uh, they would be ahead and then lose. And it was it, it was they was worrying for the coaches because they knew the Olympics were coming to Los Angeles, to their hometown in two years. And they thought something's got to change. We're willing to make uh, take a risk here and try something. And so the idea that got thrown out there was what this team needs, what these players need is a shared significant life experience to go through something together outside of volleyball, get them out of their comfort zone that would introduce adversity in some way, a challenge, and to overcome that challenge or these obstacles, they'd have to work together. And it was important that there'd be adversity overcoming that and working together to do that. And, you know, they looked at different options. One of them was, uh, it's kind of funny to think about now, but boot camp, they actually reached out to the United States Marine Corps and said, could we send our guys through boot camp? And they said, no, sorry. And no. <laughs> the guys through boot camp. Uh, so they ended up with this organization called Outward Bound, which is, that's what they do. They take groups and they send them into these, they create experiences. And uh, so they, the course was custom designed for the USA Volleyball. It was three weeks in winter, 
up and over the Abajo Mountains and into the Canyonlands area of Canyonlands National Park in Southeast Utah. It was uh, three weeks. It was, uh, they got up and over 11,000 feet. They were snowshoeing, carrying 70 pound packs. They hiked over a hundred miles. I mean, this was a rigorous course that demanded that they that re, they work together. They were really reliant on each other to survive out there. And then as with any time organizations do something like an outward bound or zip lines or working together on obstacle courses, the biggest challenge is how do they take that back to their team? So do you have studies on what they were able to do during that three week outward bound course and what they were able to bring back and how they did that? Yeah, well, in researching the book, was what I found fascinating is I really got to understand at a detailed level what they did on that were bound that translated to results on the court. So let me give you some examples. Okay. First of all, they're snowshoeing and it's deep snow this time of year. Okay. So they imagine these guys, they're not small individuals, Greg. These these guys are six foot to six foot eight, six foot nine. They're big, they're tall. They're and the, the snowshoe technology was not great in that in that time. So they're pushing post holing into the snow. It takes a lot of work with a 70 pound pack uh, to snowshoe. And so if you're out front, you're breaking trail. Okay. Breaking trail is working 25 to 30% harder than the rest of the team. And so one person is out there breaking trail, then they, they, they get exhausted. They move to the back of the line and the next person steps up. So just getting from point A to point B, you start to really appreciate the role that your teammates are playing. And, and again, we're talking about survival. When they get to point B, their campsite, this is uh, January, so there's not a lot of light out. It's going to get dark quickly, so someone's got to clear the snow. Someone's mm -hmm. going to have to put up a tent. Someone's going to gather firewood. Someone's going to start cooking and getting dinner ready. And so just to get through the basics of life, get some food, stay warm, have a little conversation, get in your tent and sleep for the night, and then wake up at dawn the next day to get up and going again, it was a full team effort. And it doesn't happen overnight you know, on something like this. It was several you know week maybe seven to ten days before around the campfire they started to share some of their um thoughts about the importance of teamwork and what they might need to do differently on the court uh to 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 uh, come back and, and translate this but i think the and there's other things i could go into around trust and building trust and with ropes and things like that but the important thing is that it established a baseline of trust and respect among yeah. the among the players. And I think every team needs that. You don't have to go on a three-week outward bound. What you do need to do for any team leader, uh, any coach, is create the conditions for trust and respect amongst your – and that's sort of like the oxygen of a team, right? And if you don't have that, then it's really hard to get to the higher-level stuff we're going to talk about. And so I yeah. think for this team, that that's what it did. Yeah, it's interesting because – Trust and respect are the first two words I use in the definition of what a team is all about, an effective team is all about. And your example of being able to rotate that leadership, that's evident when you watch geese fly. Because the same thing when, a ge when geese are flying, the lead goose is breaking all the wind and they have to drop back and they rotate their leadership on a regular basis. So they, the power behind that now puts a human aspect to it as opposed to just the birds. So. Yeah, that's fascinating. So they were able to bring some of those ideas back and start to put it into play on the court. Is that right? 
Yeah, and it didn't happen again overnight there on the court either. Uh, but like, for example, one thing that they did when they came back was they they looked around at the best teams in the world. You know, they knew that they weren't yet in the top five. They were about 13th in the world. So to, to get to a medal stand, they're going to have to go from 13 to three in less than 18 months, which is pretty much unheard of. So they, they're looking around and saying, how do we get to the medal stand? Well, one thing that a lot of teams do in, in this, this situation is you look to the best teams and you copy them, right? And so they look to the Soviet Union, they tried to copy that system, but the players were totally different. The type of athletes on the Soviet team were totally different than these Americans that were sort of shorter and more wiry and agile. And they grew up playing on the beach and they were very creative. And they, so they could not take the Soviet system and try to, you know, top down implement it. And so they went to the Japanese and they looked at the Japanese system, which seemed to have a little bit more correlation with the kind of players the Americans have. And the coach of the Japanese was Yasutaka Matsudera, and he became a friend of the American coach, Doug Beale, and they started sharing information, and Matsudera was freely sharing everything, because the Japanese had won a gold medal in the 70s, sharing how they approached volleyball, their system, and, and the American coaches loved it. They were soaking up, but they had one thing bothered them. They said, why are you so willing to share this information? And he said, well, you know, sort of Zen-like, very calmly, so only the Japanese can play like the Japanese. And, and, and they said, tell, tell us more about that. And he said, well, he compared it to a Xerox copy. You've got the original and then you make a copy and it's degraded from the original. And if you make a copy of that copy, it's further degraded. So he said, anyone who tries to copy this system is never going to be better than us because it aligns with our players, it aligns with our culture. And so the light bulb went off for the American co coaches. We've got to create a system that brings out the full potential of our team, our unique talents, the unique players we have, uh, the American culture that these, these athletes grew up in. And it's a system that will allow our, our unique talents to shine. And, and that's one of the secrets, I think, to great success is you can borrow from the best, but you got to make it your own. You got to find a way to, to make it your own. And so that trust and respect allowed them to start trying things, trial and error and evolving. And they ended up coming up with a system called the American system, which is still utilized today by many, by the U.S. and all around the world. It revolutionized um, volleyball, but they did it because they were willing to try something. Now, one of the things you mentioned in the book, it says this team changed. So I'm assuming that's what you're talking about here, is this team changed how volleyball is played globally. So let's go back now and talk about the Japanese. If the Japanese say nobody can do it as good as us, so the Americans build this whole system in, nobody else can do it as good as the Americans did it. So how, how did it actually change the way volleyball is played? Well, I think like without getting into too much of the weeds, the biggest thing that they did that was different was differentiation of the players. And so before this team there were a lot of generalists out on the court. There were a lot of players that could do a lot of things well. And that was in most of the systems and offenses and defenses in volleyball, they utilized this idea of a generalist. But what the U.S. did was they developed a system around specialization where certain players specialized in certain skills. And then they created a system that utilized that to its greatest extent, right? So that so individuals could then excel at what they were doing well. And so, you know, I, I think the, the US took that American system. Now, now other 
other countries have sort of taken that that massive shift and applied their own twist to it and, and been very successful, but they're still building off of some of the great ideas and the evolutionary work that this team did coming out of Outward Bound. That's fascinating because, and I may be off on this because I, I skimmed different parts of the book, but one of my favorite chapters in the book that I skimmed into and I really liked was the breaking point, okay, which is your chapter 11. So was was Outward Bound part of the breaking point? Absolutely. Yeah, the breaking point is a, a, a point in the development of this team where it was about halfway through Outward Bound. And what happened was one of the players who was one of the top two players on the team, uh, Dusty Dvorak, he was a world-class setter. He, you might... Uh, compare him to a quarterback in football. Okay. The center right. is like a quarterback. So imagine the quarterback of the team and he's on outward bound and he's not buying in to all this team stuff on outward bound. And, and we went to the coaches, there happened to be a resupply pickup truck that made its way through back roads into this remote area in Utah to resupply the players. And he realized that that truck had to get, back to civilization. And so he decided that he was going to take a, a trip, um, you know, hitchhike it or just like get one of the extra seats on that, get a ride out of uh, the wilderness. And he told the- He was fed up with his outward bound snow cold stuff. He liked the beach. <laughs> I'm done. Uh, and so the coaches said, okay, you know, Dusty, you don't have to be here. We're not forcing you to be here. This is something we all committed to do as a team. Uh, you're free to go. But when you come back, uh, in, in, when we're back in San Diego, there's no guarantee that you're going to be back on this team. All right. So we're committing to doing this together. And, and that that's a very courageous move. You know, th we're talking about a, one of the best players on the team and, and someone that most people would say, well, you, you're not going to win a gold medal without Dusty Dvorak. So Dusty thinks about it and he talks to the coaches and he talks to you know the team psychologist and 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 what they he decided, by the way the team psychologist was your dad well there's actually two i wish i could say that but there's actually <laughs> two team psychologists there was chuck johnson and my dad and they were back, going back and forth and somehow my dad got out of the outward bound part uh and did the trip to japan but anyway the dusty decided that you know i could come back i could leave now uh, he had a he had a feeling that Doug would probably invite him back on the team because he was so good. You know, he had certain he was almost untouchable. He was so good. He knew that. But he also knew that he would never have the trust and respect of his teammates if he came back. You know, he, if he left now and didn't finish outward bound, he wouldn't have the rapport that he would need with his teammates to be the talented center that he was. And so he decided, you know what, I'm going to stay. And that was a gelling moment. That was, that's why I called that chapter or titled it the breaking point because mm -hmm. it brought together a lot of the themes of what the coaches were trying to do, got them committed. And all of a sudden now they're moving in the same direction. And that's, that's key because he had to build the trust because he knew that they would probably breach it. And we all know that if you breach trust, you can rebuild it, but it's awfully hard to do so. 
So did the other players know that he was thinking about bolting? They did. Yes, they knew he'd been talking about it. Uh, he said he, he let the other players know. And then he went to tell the coach and, and the coaches, you know, one of the thing they, one other requirement they asked of Dusty, they said, look, Dusty, you can leave your, we just asked one thing before you leave, please get in front of the players and tell them why you're leaving. Let, you, you've got to tell them why you're going to take this truck, you know, get a ride out on this truck. And I, I think that was part of it was a brilliant move. You know, that was like, that's a guilt trip and a half. <laughs> it was a brilliant move because, you know, that's when Dusty realized, how can I get in front of these guys and tell them and then come back and be their quarterback, be their setter, you know, lead yeah. them to a gold medal. It really wasn't possible. And then Dusty, it, 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 what it ended up doing was really committing. There's something that happens called shared purpose. And I think, you know, this great right around a team, when you really create that shared purpose and that common goal and, and, and then get commitment and not just top down commitment, but commitment from the players, right. Yeah. From, from the team itself. And that is often the thing that separates, you know, the great teams is they, that the, the leadership emerges from the players. And that was the beginning of it. Yeah. So they had to, they had to build the trust. They had to go through some communication challenges. They had, they, I'm sure they, I'm sure there were times, especially on the outward bound trip where they were, um, let's just say less than friendly towards each other. Uh, yes. <laughs> so, you know, there's some conflict going on, but when they come back from that conflict, they can get full commitment because they felt like everybody was listened to at that point. So that, that starts to draw, try and pull this all together. Yeah. You know, the people feel listened to, they understand what their role is and everyone respects that role. Your role may not be a starter. It may be to come in at certain points, but you have equal respect and everyone understands and accepts the role that they're being asked to play to contribute to team success. Right. Um, I'll, I'll give you one quick example. There was a player named Mark Waldy. And Mark Waldy, before they developed the American system, was one of the starters and had a lot of time on the court because he was more of a generalist player. He was pretty good at everything. When they moved to this American system that required and relied on more specialization, he didn't have as much playing time, he, but he realized the team was a lot better. And so one of the things that he had to accept was the team is better. My new role in making this team successful is, is less high profile, is more limited, but we're a better team. And he yeah, was able to be the to flexor, if you will. Yeah, he was able to do that. Not everyone can do that, but there was something no. about this team that they were that the players accepted that role. That's why the, I have the Mavericks in the uh, title. They had to come together. They were Mavericks. They were a lot of them learned how to play on the beach. And when you play on the beach, it's just two on two. It's a little bit more about you and your teammate and just ego driven. Uh, six on six indoor was a different thing, and they had to make that mental um, mm -hmm. you know, pivot. So. When they get to this point and they start to realize this, how much longer after they came back from the outward bound before they really started to, and I'm going to use the term that I think you used earlier, gel? Mm -hmm. Well, outward bound was January of 1983. Okay. The Olympics were late July, early August of 84. Four. So we're looking at about 18 months there. It took... When they came back from Outward Bound, 
they started experimenting with these different ways of playing volleyball and coming up with this American system. They didn't call it that at the time. They were just trying different things out. That was a good six to eight months of working through this stuff. But as they got better and they solidified their approach, they started winning at a, at a, at a higher pace, uh, you know, higher percentage than they'd ever won before. So as they rolled into 1984, one year after Outward Bound, uh, they were becoming, I would say, a top five, top four team in the world. As they approached the Olympics, they won. Well, they went to the Soviet Union in May to play the Soviets a few months before the Olympics. Because everyone thought at this point they could see how good the Americans were getting. They knew the Soviets were good. The Soviets were as good at volleyball as they were at hockey in 1980, okay? So they'd won the gold medal, they'd won the world championships. So this was the dominant team in the world and the Americans went to the Soviet Union, actually to today's Ukraine, um, and they beat the Soviets on Russian soil four games in a row in May. And um, at the end of those, you know, during those games, I think it was during the first game, uh, shortly after the game, it was announced that the Soviets wouldn't be boycotting the LA Olympics. Uh, so we didn't actually get this kind of titanic clash between the US and the Soviet Union on 84, like we did in hockey in 80. But mm-hmm. this team did go and beat the best team in the world on their home soil. A few on their ago. own soil. Yeah, which yeah. is a big deal. It was a really big deal. Well, and now, the interesting part is they beat them, whereas in the, in the 1980 hockey team, the U.S. hockey team got obliterated weeks before. Um, the Russians just obliterated them. I think it was eleven to one or something. So that was, it was so interesting how that that starts to come together. And they started they started to believe, if you would. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They started to believe that they could do it. Belief is so important in the confidence of a team, and then believing in each other. Mm-hmm. You know, they one of the things they did after Outward Bound that, that my father led was they had a series of meetings where they they worked out what we would team basically team norms or principles or ground rules. How are we going to work together? They realized it was how they worked together was going to be the X factor. So they decided to talk about in these meetings, these facilitated discussions, how do we want to communicate on the court? How do we want to provide feedback to each other during practice? How do we want to provide feedback? to the coaches? How do we want the coaches to provide feedback to us? You know, what are we willing to do to commit uh, to showing up at practice? Are we going to be there early? Are we going to be hung over? Are we going to be there on time? So they started to work through these team principles and, and ground rules and making them explicit and writing them down. And uh, one of them really fascinated me, right? Because the one that stood out for me was someone said, hey, how are we going to treat each other when someone on our team makes a mistake and that's you see it all the time in sports and you know in volleyball that you go to dig the ball and instead of passing it to your teammate it goes off into the crowd right it goes off into the in the Mm -hmm. bleachers how what are you gonna so they said you know the dirty looks aren't helping because that was how they dealt with it before they turn and Look at that guy with that look yeah. and say, what are you doing? Get your stuff together. And they they said, you know, that's not helping. We've got to support each other. Say, you're going to get it next time. We've got this. 
And they, so they actually, and a lot of this stuff is kind of how sports works today, but you know, it wasn't working like that at the time. Uh, I, when you watch a volleyball game today or volleyball match, after every point, the team comes together. You see this in women's volleyball and men's volleyball. Yes. They all come together, they have a huddle, and then they break. If you go back and watch the 84 team, the one that I was 13 years old, they didn't do that back then. Uh, they were still trying to figure out how they were going to, you know, work as a team. So th they, they talked about it. You know, we started the podcast talking about it's how you work together. That's the, the difference. Well, you got to figure that out. You know, it's not top down. The players have to figure out how they want to do it that works in their culture. Yeah, and it's, it's about building the culture all the way through. And that, that, that's the strength in that. Back on what you were talking about earlier with the um, player who was more of a generalist, in baseball, the player that has the longest lifespan in the major leagues is the utility player because his ability to pull into all those different positions. Is it kind of the same thing in the volleyball? Does that generalist then have that ability to kind of just observe and see? And do they have a little bit longer life with the team? Yeah, that's a good question. I, you know, I'm not enough of an expert in volleyball to know today that answer, but you brought, you bring up a really good point because in, there is something in baseball. They often call that person the glue guy. Have you mm -hmm. heard that term? You know, yes, it, it, absolutely. It, you know, those, those, those guys that stick around because they're generalists in baseball, they're also generally great leaders. They're wonderful people to have in the clubhouse. They help a team gel in some way. They're bringing something to the mix in addition to coming in and being able to play second and an outfield and all that because they can do that. So they generally bring their talent, but also, you know, they've been in the league a long time. They understand they can coach put their arm around a rookie, talk to them, help them develop. And that is so important uh, to uh, a team, to a developing team is to have people that care about those relationships and bring some element of, of dynamism or, or team building to their culture. And that's, it's so key because everybody brings something a little bit different. So as I was looking through the roster, preparing for today's interview, I went down the names of everybody on that uh, 1984 team. Quite frankly, there's only one name that I recognized. Karch Karai. How much has he taken from that? And that's a name I think even people who are not familiar with volleyball may be able to recognize. Has he been able to take some of those things he learned from that team back then and apply it to his coaching days today? Absolutely. I think there's a common thread from that team, which is the first gold medal in USA Volleyball was the 1984 men's team. The first gold medal for the women came in 2021 in Japan, and Karch Karai was the coach of mm -hmm. that team. Karch was the youngest player on the 84 team. And you're right, he is the Michael Jordan of volleyball. You know, he's the most widely known and recognized player. He was voted player of the century. He's won a gold in indoor and he's won a gold on the beach. He's the only player who's done that. And he's also um, the only one of only two players that's won gold and coached a team to win gold. So he's pretty unique. He's definitely, um, when I mentioned earlier that leadership has to emerge from the team to set a standard around what's acceptable. 
and, and how you're going to work together. He was the person, even though he was the youngest on the team in 84, who brought a higher level of intensity and focus in, to how he approached the game. And he had a very high standard for himself. And then he held that standard to his teammates. So he brought a, a level of leadership. And then I think he learned about this idea of, you know, it's not just the talent, it's how you work together. I think he took that and applied those same principles yeah. to developing on the women's side. And, and he he actually wrote the foreword to the book. You know, when I sent him the, the manuscript, I said, Karch, would you be willing to, you know, read this? And if you like it, would you write a foreword? And he said, well, I, I definitely have to read it first to see if I agree with the philosophy. And about a month later, he called me up and he said, I love it. You've captured the essence here. Good. It's, it's absolutely what I do. And I'd, I'd be honored to write the forward. And I was very blessed that he did. And so, yeah, I think that tradition moves on, is carried on with Karch and now on the women's team. And that's, that's so powerful when you start to think about it, because you've gone through so many things. I've been jotting down a few words as you've been talking. You know, obviously, trust and respect popped right up there. They had to take ownership. So in other words, if somebody makes a mistake, they take ownership that they make the mistake. But yet, they take ownership. If they make a slant, if they make a spike, they do it right. The team supports them, but they accept that ownership as well, for doing things right. Then we've got, you know, they, they believed in what they were doing. So all these things start to come together. All of that starts to pull. Now, obviously, there were some players that were good enough to make the roster. But they they just somewhere along the line they couldn't quite answered the demands that the coaches were asking of them. What yes. kind of impact did that have on the on team dynamics? Well, I, I think it served to strengthen the commitment to the players that were willing to make the sacrifice. So there were a couple of players, and one in particular was widely considered to be the, the best player in the country at the time. I know Karch is the player you remember. It's the player I remember. But the, Karch was not the best player on the team in 84. Mm -hmm. uh, sorry, he wasn't the best player on the team in 1982 when he was coming onto the team. It was another player. And the coaches said, look, if you want to play on the beach every weekend in the beach tournaments, you can do that. That's fine. You just, you can't do that and be on this team. Uh, if you want to go play in Europe for money, and that was becoming a very popular um, path for players that's fine. You could go play in Europe. We wish you the best, but you cannot play in Europe and be on this team. And, and so the coaches were requiring a level of commitment. Not everyone was willing to make the commitment, even though they were very, very good. They, they, they sort of opted themselves out. And I, what that did, I think, was it served to strengthen the commitment of those that were there. If the coaches were willing to go with the players that were committed, even if some had maybe more talent, they went with the players that were committed and, and that ended up being, the team actually got better. The team actually got better with that, with having some of those highly talented players leave because now everyone's very aligned around this shared common purpose and goal. Exactly. Because they have the same mission. They have the same passion for the mission to do what they need to do. And that mission does not mean the mission statement. It means the mission for what they want to do as the team and focus in on that. Those are so powerful words to start to come together. And 
So let, let's another spoiler alert, I guess. In 1988, they went on and won the gold again. Yes, and that time they were playing against the Soviet Union, and they that's what as an epic match they won in Seoul against the Soviets, and and that really solidified the legacy of this team. Mm -hmm. So, how many of those players was it the same team that came back uh, four years later? It was a large number. I don't know off the top of my head exactly the percentage, but Karch Karai was mm -hmm. by that time the leader of the team by '88. Uh, a lot of the uh, Steve Timmons, the was sort of like if the um, the best hitter, the outside hitter on that team that everyone remembers. So uh, I, probably I'm thinking 70, 80 percent of the team from 84 went on to to win gold in 88. It was basically the same team. And they followed the same philosophies and the principles, as we've already talked about, that have really solidified the way the game is played today in the U.S., but even beyond. Yeah, a different coach came in, Marv Dumphy, who was a, a protege of Doug Beal. And Marv was the coach from 84 to 88. But the essentially, it was the same principles, team principles, emergent leadership. Uh, my father and his partner, Chuck Johnson, were still involved as team psychologists. There was a lot of continuity from 84 through 88. What you just said is something businesses can learn from, I think, so greatly. So often an organization starts to make the turn and starts to get better. And then there's a change in leadership and the new person comes in and says, no, we're changing everything. And it just, they fall apart. The fact that another regime came in and still upheld what was being done, that solidifies the strength of a team, which creates the culture. Is that, am I on the right page there? Yeah, it was one of those cases where the leadership coming in was building off of the foundation of what they what they were gifted mm -hmm. when they arrived, as opposed to tearing down and trying to rebuild in their in some new direction. So let's try and take this away from sports. And I'm like you. I love the sports analogy in business. One of my favorite books was a combination book written by Don Shula and Ken Blanchard called Everyone's a Coach. And I love the analogies, the way they pulled all that together. But what can we take from here? What can managers of frontline teams, and again, I want to talk about it because you talked in, in the bio, we talked a little bit about here, leading in the age of AI. So like, can we tie some of this to the AI aspect of things? Can we tie it into business, what principles that have been driven here with the 84 team into business today? Absolutely. I mean, just and to kind of keep with the the AI theme a little bit, since we talked about that at the intro, you know, artificial intelligence is going to make more and more decisions for organizations in the future. The kinds of decisions that are best made by analytical crunching numbers, you know, making decisions quickly and using probabilities and things like that, that's going to get better and better the AI and so there's going to be decisions that are made by AI in the future which sort of brings begs the question well what are leaders going to do and the answer to that is they're going to be doing more of the coaching more of the creative elements all the elements that make us human that are our human essence are going to become more important yes. in the age of AI uh, so being able to unleash a team's potential through creativity and innovation. You know, AI 
might be good at executing a strategy. It's not going to uh, tell you what your strategy should be or what exactly. business you should be in. Uh, these are going to be things that humans do. And so a lot of the best practices I pull from this team apply to how we can optimally build cultures and build teams at work. You know, establishing team principles and guidelines, um, developing a shared purpose and a, and a common mission, um, asking people to commit to the success of the team, understanding their role, respecting each other's roles. Mm -hmm. You know, all of these apply to building a, a high-performing team in the business world. And that's, that's absolutely the key. You know, I could go on with this for hours. I mean, there's no doubt about it. We've been on here for more than my usual length on a podcast. It's just fascinating. When I get into this, I really get excited about recognizing it and everything else. Hopefully, we can get you back on here talking a little bit more about the business sides of things uh, in a few months. Would, would you be open to doing that? Oh, yeah. This has been a fabulous conversation. I really enjoyed it. I, I, can, I can see we've got some alignment around, you know, how we like to approach teams. And it's an endless um endless subject to kind of dive into. Oh, yeah. Uh, I think Patrick Lencioni says it. He says, teamwork is not difficult. It's just challenging and continuous. So you can't do it one day. You can't have a workshop and have everything work together just right. It's not going to happen. So, uh, and by the way, we just recently had somebody on, time to your last point, we just recently had a guest on the podcast who talked about uh, complicated versus complex. And leaders focus on complex, where frontline tends to work on complicated. The AI sounds like it can do the complicated, but it can't do the complex. So yeah. that would be a good tag one for folks that are listening right now. That would be one you want to go back and pick up on. Complex versus complicated. So again, Sean, it has been absolutely enjoyable to have you on board here with us with the podcast. Um, if people need to reach out to you, what's the best way for them to find you? Well, realtimeperformance.com is my website. You can find my contact information there. I'm also on Twitter at uh, SeanPMurray111.com or uh, at, I mean, that's my Twitter address. So, yep. uh, and you can find all that at my website, also links to my podcast and the book is on Amazon or anywhere you want can buy a book online. It's If Gold is Our Destiny, How a Team of Mavericks Came Together for Olympic Glory. I love it. If Gold is Our Destiny is the title of the book. Folks, go out and pick that one up right away. You're not going to want to miss this and be able to figure out how you can use it for your teams. Sean, once again, thank you very much for joining us. You know, folks, we've been downloaded in 59 countries now. We're getting ready to go into our sixth season on the Teamwork Advantage. So go back, pick up some old episodes. If you're new to joining us here on the podcast, we've got a lot of great people that we've interviewed. But our philosophy is simple. Once a week with the Teamwork Advantage. You get ideas from our list guests that they have shared with you and skills and ideas that you can implement right away. And not just at work, but at home as well. Until next week, remember, having a good day is just being average. When you listen to the Teamwork Advantage, you're not average. So go make today and every day excellent and exceptional. Take care. Bye-bye. This has been the Teamwork Advantage with Greg Gregory. To learn more about how Greg can help your organization develop a powerful winning culture, visit teamsrock.com. That's T-E-A-M-S-R-O-C-K.com.
Be sure to join Greg next week when he interviews another exciting and powerful thought leader on the teamwork advantage. Until then, as Greg says, make sure you have a great week because a good week is just being average.